Grace and peace to you from God the Father through the Lord Jesus, friends. Amen. In our Sunday morning Bible studies, uh, we've been looking at the Old Testament festivals and the worship regulations given to Israel by God. The observance of this particular special feast, the Passover, was one such regulation. Not only was the feast commanded, but there were a number of instructions regarding how to eat it. The people were supposed to dress for travel, because the very first Passover had been celebrated the night before they escaped from Egypt. Their ancestors had eaten that first Passover with sandals on, with walking sticks ready. And still, one and a half thousand years later, Jesus and the disciples would have eaten it in similar fashion. There were many, many festivals commanded in the Old Testament. And each of those came with many regulations about the manner in which to celebrate it. All of them, as we're seeing in that Sunday morning study, pointed to Jesus in one way or another. In the New Testament, Jesus didn't hand over many new regulations or rituals to his church. As Paul wrote to the Colossians, those Old Testament ordinances were a shadow of what was to come. They foreshadowed Jesus, as a shadow on the ground lets you know that someone is coming around the corner ahead. In the New Testament, as the message of Jesus went out all around the world, Jesus gave his church only a few very simple rites to be practiced until his return. On Holy Thursday every year, we mark the institution of one ritual, and it goes by a number of names, the Eucharist, Communion, the Lord's Supper, this particular bread and wine meal. Again, Jesus only gave us a few rites as his New Testament people that we would more deeply consider each one. Tonight we'll ponder the Supper. Let's look at the sermon reading from Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 to 28. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. What Jesus did at that meal, with bread and wine, was not a part of the traditional festival. He was instituting a new thing, so he explained it to them. He took bread and said to them, This is my body. He took wine and he said, This is my blood. By his powerful word, with which he spoke the universe into existence, this was and is true. Indeed, we know that whatever God says, he is also able to do. We believe with the same faith as Abraham, who in his faith gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Romans 4.21 But we can't pretend that this isn't a great mystery. What Jesus promises here, that with bread his body is present, with wine his blood is present, this is something outside our normal experience of the world. These things don't happen. I could fervently wish otherwise, but I just can't eat a piece of cake and get the benefits of a big salad bowl. What Jesus describes, what the church teaches and believes about this, is a mystery and a miracle. We can't explain it with human reason. Because we don't teach cannibalism, right? As if my wafer that I'll have tonight had some big toe and you were getting some liver. Sure, that would be miraculous, but it's less mysterious. This just isn't what Jesus describes here. This is my body. This is my blood, are his words. Here I am, in my entirety, the Savior who offered himself up for your salvation. And if our reason strains and murmurs at this message, we should ask ourselves, do I really only accept to be true those things which I've personally reasoned out? Do I only believe to be true those things which I fully understand? We don't live that way in our daily lives. We could all look back on our day-to-day and find 101 things that happened to us, things that we observed, whose mechanical processes we can't explain. Some of these 
maybe are simpler or more evident than others, right? Can, can all of us fully describe the mechanics behind our phones? I'm sure I could say some fairly correct things, but when you get down to it, I'm not an electrical engineer. I, I don't understand what's happening in a mechanical way there, but I know that when I punch in the right numbers on my phone, someone else's phone will ring. There are bigger mysteries that we don't often stop to consider. No one actually knows why gravity works. The best guess some people have right now is that there might be a subatomic particle that creates the effects of gravity which we observe. But no one has produced any evidence that such a thing exists. It's only a hypothesis still. Gravity remains an unexplained force. It's weaker at its scale than magnetism, and yet I'm sure none of you is worried that when you walk out of church today, you're going to float off into the sky. Here's another mystery which I found surprising. There's no really good explanation for the physics of how a bicycle works. And here's the particular angle I want to take on that. Specifically, it's very hard to explain the physics of someone riding a bike without touching the handlebars. How does the bike maintain course and not immediately veer off? There's no good answer to this. One theory for a time was that the wheels create a kind of self-correcting gyroscope effect, but then a research team at Cornell University developed a bike with its weight distributed in a way that would cancel out such a gyroscope effect, and they were still able to ride this bicycle straight line without touching the handlebars. No one has put together a good explanation of this, and still, if, if you drove around tomorrow and saw someone riding their bike down the street with arms at their sides, not touching the handlebars, you wouldn't be all that surprised. We know it works, even if we don't know how. Friends, since we accept such things to be true, despite our, ability, our inability to understand them, let's give glory to Christ. Let's accept that his word is true even when it seems inexplicable, because he's not given us anything arduous or difficult here. He takes something instead in which we already find joy, eating, drinking, bread, wine, and he uses that for our blessing. Right? Rather than asking how of this gift meal from Christ, let's ask why. Here's something we ought to think about. He didn't give it to us so that we avoid it. He intends for us to eat and to drink. Yet we so often find it hard to partake. It is a bother that lengthens the Sunday service. It causes anxiety when I look at myself and see my unworthiness. I know that I ought to be holier and more righteous than I am to receive such a gift from my Savior. And that's true. We ought to be, yet we aren't. I ask you, do you think that Jesus was unaware of this when he gave us this meal? Is he surprised by our unworthiness? No. Even that very night, the twelve men who first shared this meal with him needed another lesson from him in humility and service, and so he got down and washed their feet. Jesus instituted this meal not because of your worthiness, but because of your unworthiness. It is his body and his blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. For all whose consciences accuse them, for all who seek peace and reconciliation with the God they have offended, here, reconciliation occurs at a table. Here, peace is brought about as God hosts unworthy guests for a blessed feast. You'll most often hear me call this meal the Lord's Supper, because it's the meal, the supper, which the Lord instituted. It also gets the name communion, because it's an act of communion, of fellowship, to receive it together. One of the most ancient names for this meal is the Eucharist. That's the Greek word for thanksgiving. Jesus gave thanks to God as he passed this meal around to his disciples. And that action gave this meal 
that name, the Eucharist. And it's retained that name because as we celebrate it, we give thanks for what it is and for why it was given. Amen.